Coming up in this episode, there are a few ways that writers can still uh, break into a market uh, with something a little more obscure, something a little difficult. It's not that readers are getting dumber, it's that the publishing companies are pursuing the money. It's a weird, weird world because it's, <laughs> because it's art and it's also a business. This podcast from Georgia Public Broadcasting highlights books with Georgia connections, hosted by two of your favorite public radio book nerds who also happen to be your hosts of All Things Considered on GPB Radio. I'm Orlando Montoya. And I'm Peter Biello. Thanks for joining us as we introduce you to authors, their writings, and the insights behind the stories mixed with our own thoughts and ideas on just what gives these works the narrative edge. Hey, Orlando, great to be back in the studio with you. Great to be back here. What book do you have for me today? Well, in a sense, Orlando, we're talking about every book that has been published in the last, oh, 100 years or so. Going all the way back to the <laughs> Bible we're going, huh? This is a lot of books we're going to talk about. It, it, it seems like it, right? Because we're, t- we're going to be talking about one book that's about a lot of books, or rather the ecosystem in which these books are made. Uh, it's called Big Fiction, How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry in American Literature. And it's by Emory Professor Dan Sinekin. So this is a book that anyone who loves books, anyone who loves reading, should care about. Uh, because it describes the system that creates what we call American literature. So how we read what we read, you know, what, how, how, do, how is the stuff even coming to us? Right. How's it coming to us? What, how, why is it marketed the way it is? Uh, what are the economic forces that, that enable this kind of writing to come to being? And this particular story starts kind of around World War II. I mean, uh, Dan Sinekin doesn't necessarily go in chronological order. He starts with something that happened uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, but really goes back to around World War II. Um, before that point, the writers who consider themselves sort of highbrow or modernist, uh, they often use patrons to distinguish themselves from so-called popular writers. But then World War II lands and creates a whole lot of veterans with GI bills. They all go to college. Uh, and then the 40s and 50s, you also see colleges opening up to to women and people of color, essentially pumping out a ton of readers, right? Uh, and people had disposable income back in those days. The 50s was pretty good at time economically. So uh, as Sinekin tells it, the culture back then in the 1940s and 50s was primed for something of a democratization of reading. Now, these mass market publishers were well-placed to send hundreds of thousands of novels out to these new readers. That meant all those modernist novels that were trying to differentiate themselves from popularity could now become popular. For instance, William Faulkner was made popular by New American Library, mass market publishers that put smutty covers on on Faulkner's novels, The Wild Palms and Sanctuary, and made bestsellers of those books. So in the years of the 1950s and 1960s, you see this uh, collapse of the distinction between prestige and popularity. Can you imagine William Faulkner being marketed in the way that someone like Colleen Hoover is marketed today? I didn't even know there was this difference between prestige books and popular books. Oh, well, we're going to get into that today, okay. my friend. We're going to get into it. In this era, the mid-20th century, a lot of the big publishers like Knopf and Random House and W.W. Norton, they were run by people who cared about books. They loved books, and they the companies didn't yet have shareholders to answer to. Uh, Random House went public in 1959, and that was the beginning of the conglomerate era as we know it. 
and and the people at the top who cared about books were slowly replaced by people who came from other industries who saw books as just another widget. Uh, they cared about the numbers. And by the late 1960s and mid-70s, one symptom of that is you started to see the emergence of genre writers. You know, genre, we're talking about horror, romance. Well, we would call that demographics in radio. Yeah, in, in the sense that you know that there's a certain audience that's going to buy what you're selling. Right? It, it's gotta, everything's got to be marketed. Yeah. The easiest thing to market is selling someone something that they are familiar with. So that's when people like Stephen King and Danielle Steele came to prominence in the late 70s. Later on, it was Tom Clancy and John Grisham. You know, you could slap those names in big font on a cover and you know you could sell those things. And so publishing, big publishing anyway, started to lean that way. And, you know, I asked Sinekin about this, about whether readers were just becoming lazier, more interested in less challenging books, just not as sharp as they used to be. Uh, And he had a concise answer. It's not that readers are getting dumber. It's that the publishing companies are pursuing the money. And they're pursuing the money by marketing books that are most likely to have massive appeal. They're not going to invest a ton of money into marketing something that's a little weird or offbeat or or maybe uh, offensive. Uh, But they're 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 going with the proven winners or the things they know they can sell. Very interesting. Well, the book is about how publishing changed American fiction. So can you give any example of how this happened? How did authors' behaviors change? Well, one good example is uh, the career of Cormac McCarthy. Are are you familiar with Cormac McCarthy? He died, I think, a few years ago. He died recently, and he was famously reclusive for a long, long time, but he'd been writing forever. Um, kind of in a, people would kind of recognize the minimalist Hemingway style, right? He kind of is a, is a, just an unfeeling camera on everything he sees. His early books, like, like Sutri, for example, they weren't really making any money. They were kind of difficult to read. I remember trying Sutri way, way back in the day. I got about halfway through and I just, it wasn't for me, at least at the time, I'd like to try it again with a better appreciation of what McCarthy was trying to do, but it wasn't for the mass market. It was it was well done for a specific type of reader, and it wasn't making money. And McCarthy at the time, this was, you know, 60s, 70s, he's living under the poverty line. Uh, and he was protected to some extent by those mission-driven editors of large publishing houses that were protecting him, you know, trying to get him fellowships so that he could survive and continue to write this kind of obscure stuff that appealed to a limited, narrow audience. Uh, And then those people retired and conglomeration continued its march towards big money. And around the late 80s, early 90s, there was this big push that every novel should be profitable. No longer can writers like Danielle Steele or John Grisham or Stephen King subsidize the rest of the law. Every book has to be profitable in its own right. And this was obviously not McCarthy's jam. So he's like, what do we do? So he reaches out to one of the most famous agents in the game, Lynn Nesbitt, who hands over the request to her protege, Amanda Binky Urban. Binky Urban would become one of the most powerful agents in the business, but at that point was still fairly young and uh, had actually read one of uh, McCarthy's novels. So she decided to work with McCarthy, and she helped McCarthy set up a team of folks in the publishing industry. Uh, The head of Knopf, uh, Sonny Mehta, 
Knopf was a publishing imprint that uh, belonged to Random House. Um, and several other folks within Knopf and Random House uh, who became the sort of dream team to help reinvent and repackage Cormac McCarthy. And he helped them out by writing a novel that was a departure from all those previous strange, opaque, difficult books. A popular, a book that is really on the model of a popular Western, kind of like a Louis L'Amour Western, but taken up a few notches of uh, stylistic prestige called All the Pretty Horses and became a national bestseller, became uh, won the National Book Award, became a movie with Matt Damon. Um, and so it, it carried itself financially. Uh, and it was really a departure from everything he'd done before. So next time you're in a bookstore, any bookstore will have Cormac McCarthy. Like, read a few pages of Sutri and read a few pages of All the Pretty Horses the, the the stylistic differences are noticeable. They're noticeable. Well, if I can respond to that, I think that it can't be that authors only write one type of fiction. I mean, you have authors that are going to write things that, are, that they know are going to be not profitable, and they're going to write things that they think are going to be more profitable. I think that a lot of authors have that. So we see a lot of different types of fiction even here on GPB. So. Mm-hmm. There are a few ways that writers can still... Uh, break into a market uh, with something a little more obscure, something a little difficult, right? And, and one of the ways to do that is uh, through nonprofit publishing. Uh, the, the print runs are much smaller. So literary types, writers, lovers of this kind of book uh, kind of banded together. A guy named Jim Sitter in Minnesota asked, what if we follow a path taken by a symphony or the opera and get philanthropists and the government to subsidize the kind of thing that's not broadly popular? So long story short, he collaborated with people, the people behind Coffeehouse Press and Grey Wolf. Those are big names that still exist uh, in the ecosystem today. Encouraged those people to come to Minnesota, and those two little publishers uh, became nonprofits. They envisioned themselves as resisting conglomeration, resisting New York City, where all the big presses were located, uh, and creating a home for different kinds of writing that might not make it solely on the demands of the market. Nonprofits also turned out to be a great place for non-white writers to break into the publishing industry because, as Sinekin writes, the nonprofits kind of created a space for those writers who didn't fit into the mold that the big publishers were creating, a mold that often forced them to write towards the expectation of a white audience. It was the mission of some of these nonprofit places to to uh, increase the diversity of books, and that's, of course, something that's expanded a lot in the past decade. But nonprofit publishers were, were way ahead of the curve on that. Um, the other option for the weirder books is W.W. Norton. You might remember Norton from college. Is that a familiar word, Norton? The Norton Anthology? Oh, yes. I vaguely remember that. Yeah, the Norton Anthology, they also have, like, critical editions. So, like, if you get your Gulliver's Travels, for example, it might have, like, five or six critical essays at the back. That's the Norton Critical Edition. Anyway, W.W. Norton is is an unusual exception, uh, says Sinekin, because it has this... this uh, college division, which functions like a foundation. W.W. Norton is uh, an employee-owned cooperative. It became that way when the widow of its founder decided to make it so. Um, So these Norton anthologies and Norton critical editions essentially is the arm that subsidizes the unusual books. 
in the 1990s, there was a great editor named Jerry Howard who found himself at Norton and used that freedom that Norton had to do books that didn't quite fit either the conglomerates or the nonprofits, books that might never have been published otherwise. So here's where you get someone like Walter Mosley uh, with Devil in a Blue Dress. This is where Patrick O'Brien's immensely popular sailing novels, Master and Commander was the inaugural one, uh, which had been tried uh, to be published a couple times before in the U.S. and had failed. This was the third try. No one else was going to try them, but W.W. Norton could do weird things, and so they published those books to immense success, uh, as well as, yes, Trainspotting, Fight Club. These books might not have had a chance in the United, in the United States hadn't it been for Norton, which had this uh, unusual setup where it was independent, had a little bit of buffer, had a little bit of freedom to do the oddballs, the misfits, published kind of stranger books. Aren't there weird books all the time, though? I mean, And that's, that's <laughs> well, yeah, but where do they come from? They come from weird authors. Yeah, but where do those authors go? Is what is the question, right? Like, well, let me ask you: like, how many, how often do we pay attention to uh, the the actual publisher of the book? Do you care? Do you read that and say, "Oh, I know this this book was published by so and so"? I mean, uh, no, I don't. I just find the book scrolling or searching. You know, it doesn't. I don't really pay attention to the publisher. Yeah. Do you have a favorite nonprofit press? No. Well, I, I, mean, I, would vi- I would venture that most people don't. No. Yeah. I know that University of Georgia, Mercer, all these universities put out good stuff. University presses, right? Mm-hmm. They, they publish. Uh, would, you, would you imagine a university press, for example, publishing something like a steamy potboiler romance? Mm. <laughs> no. Right? So that's, that's the kind of thing. But they would sell a lot of those, right? Mm-hmm. I imagine they would sell more than most of the academic stuff. No, no slight to the academics. They just... Those things aren't mm-hmm. flying off the shelves. Um, and that's kind of the way it is. I will say I do have a favorite nonprofit publisher. Um, it's, a, it's a publisher called Open Letter. Um, they publish works in translation. And the only reason I know about them is because I used to attend these writers' conferences where there was a ginormous book fair. 12,000 writers at this conference and all the little nonprofit presses, they all came and they, they set up a little booth and I found this one press, and they're publishing stuff that's amazing that I never see marketed. I guess this book means a lot to me, this Dan Sinekin book, because it's it's drawing attention to that, that, that hey, there's, there's more options out there than just what's being put out by the big five and marketed pretty easily. I would like to find a publisher like the way I find news sites, excuse me, sites that recommend music. You know, I have certain sites that recommend music to me that I trust. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, yeah, it would be great to find publishers like that. Yeah. I, and I suspect independent bookstores will have a better handle on that uh, than than most. So what gives this book the narrative edge, in your opinion? This book has the narrative edge because it's it's actually we haven't been talking about it as if it were an academic book, you know, but that's what it is. It's it's an academic book. That's a that's a, a heavy study of of literature. And it goes deep into how authors work their magic under a system that was pushing them in a certain way and does it in a way that that makes it interesting, exciting, makes it feel like there's something at stake. I think that was great. Um, and he was just enjoyable to talk to. He, he had a lot of passion for this. He is a reader and uh, thought a lot about why he ended up with the books that he ended up with growing up. And that's a question worth asking yourself too. Why did, why have I suddenly been reading this kind of book? Is it the only thing that I can easily find? Well, what am I missing? It also makes me wonder too, you know, would people read more if they were better able to find the book that really means something to them? 
You know, are they just uh, finding the stuff that appears on the bestseller table at Barnes and Noble and saying, none of this speaks to me, I give up? You know, that would be sad. It's a weird, weird world because it's, <laughs> because it's art and it's also a business. So, mm-hmm. you know, I think if that if this book goes into that sort of dimension, I think that would be a great read. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's definitely worth reading if you care about books, if you care about literature and the culture overall. Well, the book is How Conglomeration Changed the Publishing Industry and American Literature by Emory University Professor Dan Sinekin. Peter, thanks for telling me about it. Happy to do it. Thanks for listening to Narrative Edge. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. This podcast is a production of Georgia Public Broadcasting. Find us online at gpb.org slash narrative edge. You can also catch us on the daily GPB news podcast, Georgia Today, for a concise update on the latest news in Georgia. For more on that and all of our podcasts, go to gpb.org slash podcasts.